The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations may have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that feature in this story, I ask you not to reveal any information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Skepticism is essential in days like these. We need critical tools to help us navigate a world of weaponized disinformation, where lies are easily monetized and polarized political tribes prioritize loyalty over an objective view of truth. But skepticism can also be a barrier. It can provide a lens of judgment through which we may be too cautious to share our real thoughts and feelings. We'd like to present ourselves as rational and objective, even though we know that's not how people really are. Acting as if our feelings and impulses don't exist may sometimes feel appropriate. It may make us feel like we're fitting in with a more accepted range of thought. But that can make it hard for us to really express ourselves, and in turn, it prevents us from addressing and coming to terms with how we really feel. The predominant reason that people see or experience ghosts, the most likely way that you or I would ever come across a spirit of the dead, is not because we've strayed into a sinister ruin or have got lost off the beaten track somewhere after the sun went down. It's because we've lost someone. The greatest cause of encounters with the dead is grief, the death of someone we love. Intuitively, it may seem obvious. Losing a loved one is a painful, life-changing event, something that hits us and hurts us unlike anything else. And yet you might still be surprised at just how common seeing a ghost of a deceased loved one really is. A study at the Swedish University of Gautberg found that among the elderly, 80% who had lost their partner reported experiencing a hallucination of them within a month of their passing. And in a third of those cases, they reported interacting with the deceased. They spoke with them, and they spoke back. Grief visions are not unusual. They are the norm. But the traditional view of these experiences is that they are a stumbling block on the way to recovery. Going all the way back to Freud, the psychiatric profession has considered such events to be a crutch that must be put aside, that we must sever these bonds before we can move on. Now, I have no academic or practical experience of psychology, but as an approach, that strikes me as incredibly cold. Who amongst us who has lost someone would not give anything to have that person back for just a second, to hear their voice, experience their touch, or simply just to be in their presence? 
whether it was real or not. When someone dies, they don't just vanish. All the habits and routines you built together with them will still draw you in. The things they owned and treasured are still there, scattered everywhere. You may even still be able to detect their scent. The dead leave so much behind. Is it any wonder that a mind reminded constantly of loss, that it would ease its distress with a comforting hallucination that eased the pain and alleviated the suffering? And if you believe in life after death, wouldn't you want a loved one, whatever remains of them, to do whatever they could to come back, to believe that your love could cross any border, to know that someone is not really gone, and that they're still with you, and there's a chance you'll be together again, someday. Are these crutches, or just a natural part of coming to terms with a loss, learning to live without someone, but knowing in some way that they'll still always be with you? I doubt that anyone who experiences a grief vision really cares whether it was real or not. When you are suffering, why wouldn't you accept the comfort of someone you loved? Isn't that what you would expect someone you love to do? The question isn't really whether these things really happen or not. It's why we don't talk about them. Why is it that we're afraid to discuss such profound moments? Why are we afraid to be so human? Grief visions raise questions that can be uncomfortable for us to address. They expose our vulnerability. They show that even the most rational of us can conjure up experiences that are tangibly real in moments of great crisis, or perhaps more profoundly, that the barrier between life and death is not so firm as many of us would suppose, that something can linger beyond death, something that exists outside our knowledge of physics, and that someday all of us are likely to come face to face with it. It's much easier for those unaffected to try to move things on or draw firm lines about what is real and what is not. It provides protection from ambiguity. Better to play rational and stay quiet and to avoid messy emotions and difficult existential questions. Despite their commonality, stories relating to grief are relatively uncommon in the new ghost stories archive. If I had to guess why, it's because unlike so many supernatural experiences, these grief visions are mostly positive. They provide comfort in a difficult time. They're also intimate, an experience people are less inclined to share with a stranger. The stories that involve grief in my archive tend to be stories that are much darker. Human relationships are complicated. Sometimes they can be abusive. And when they come to an end, the fallout is very different. The grief much more complicated and potentially destructive. Today's story is about an abusive relationship and the shadow that it can cast over someone and how even when it's over, it's hard to simply just walk away it's also a story about men and the clumsy ways that they show affection for each other and try to look after each other in times of crisis. So as with last month's story, you will encounter some outdated attitudes 
although with less foul language than in the previous story. We can only speculate how things might have turned out differently had the people involved been more able to talk more directly about their problems and experiences. But that's always easier to judge in hindsight, and it would certainly have been hard to predict that things would escalate in the way that they did. This is case number 167, and it's called The Wife, and you can hear it in full after these messages. Before we begin, I'd just like to ask a little favour. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show. It really helps people to find the podcast, and that in turn makes it easier to produce more episodes in the future. Thank you. And now, onto the story. I've known Greg my whole life. We lost touch after college when I went to work in Manchester. When I was back down visiting mum and dad, I'd see him around, bump into him down the pub and so on. I mean, I don't want to speak ill, but he was always a wuss. He was a wimp when he was a kid and he was a wimp when he grew up. He was a nice guy, don't get me wrong, I like Greg. But we weren't close at school because you just wouldn't hang around with a square like him. Always had a note from his mum to get out of games, you know the type of kid. Later when you're grown up it's different and even though he was still kind of the same, we became mates. He was easy to get on with. When I moved back he'd started hanging around with some of my old friends and I got to know him too. Greg had a problem. And that was his missus. I'd heard he was with someone, and when I bumped into him just before I moved back, he said he was engaged. Then a few months later I bumped into him again, and she was there. Thought she was pregnant. Later, when I was talking to my mate Ed, who we both went to school with, he said she was just a big girl. He's to their own. She was sort of pretty in a way. Didn't get invited to the wedding. No big surprise there, we weren't really mates then. The next time I saw her, oh, she was big. I mean, really big. Ed had mentioned it, but I didn't believe him. I thought he was talking it up for a laugh. But she piled on the pounds. The kind of girl they'd put on a scooter these days. Oh, a forklift. I mean, joking aside, she wasn't a well woman. And not a nice woman either. First time I met her, she barely said a word. As shy a thing as you could imagine. You wouldn't have thought she'd be any trouble. But it quickly became obvious that he was completely under her fat thumb. He was taking her orders. She didn't go to work, she stayed at home. Now that'd be okay if she was looking after kids, but they didn't have any. Can't remember what job she used to have, but she didn't work anymore. She was ill, but we never found out what from. There were always things wrong with her. Her back, her legs. She was depressed, she was stressed. It was one thing after another. She didn't go out much. And it was Greg's job to look after her. To provide for her. To be at her beck and call all day long. If he was out, she'd call him and summon him home. He could be out with us having a drink. And she'd call him up and he'd have to run off home to her. Otherwise he'd have to be back before ten. Yeah, he had a home time. 37 years old, and he had a home time. I mean, it was just something you got used to. We never really talked about it, not while Greg was there anyway. When he went off home, you knew why and you said goodbye like it was normal. 
We knew why he was going, and he knew that we knew. And he was probably glad we didn't bring it up. It wasn't really our business to say anything. We all felt sorry for him. It was pathetic, but that's how it was. I mean, his choices never really had a backbone. The only time I ever saw him stand up for himself was, you know, ironically, when someone had a go at her. I mean, we sometimes would make occasional fat jokes about it. One time Ed said one, and he was drunk and he forgot Greg was there. He said she was so big she had her own postcode. Greg was livid and started to go on about how she was unwell and needed looking after, and how the council wouldn't help, and how the NHS were useless. He was defending her. She was running his life and making him miserable. And he was defending her? It was ridiculous. It made no sense. I mean, she hated us. She never had us over. We had Greg over, but she never came. Not to a barbecue or for dinner or anything. If we saw them together in the street, she'd basically ignore us. She'd check her phone or do something else like carry on shopping. She was just rude. He used to cancel on us a lot because of her. Sometimes if we were expecting him at the pub or we'd invited him out somewhere, he might cancel last minute. There'd be no excuse, just a sorry guys, can't make it tonight text. We knew why, but he wouldn't admit it. The one time I lost it with him was when we were going to see the levellers. He said he was definitely up for it. So I said I'd get him a ticket. I joked, but not really joking, about whether he'd pull out. I knew it wouldn't finish before 10pm. I texted him during the week and he said he was really looking forward to it. But on the night, nothing. He was a no-show. I didn't actually think he'd drop out. Not when he spent 25 quid on a ticket. It was just sad. A man who couldn't leave the house because his wife said so. He didn't show his face for a few weeks after. Still made him pay for the ticket though. Then one day, she died. Totally out of the blue, no warning signs. She dropped dead. And, and, you know, dropped the word. She fell down the stairs and broke her neck. Her funeral. That was something. Didn't know they made coffins that big. Those were some hefty pallbearers. It's amazing we got through that one. We had a few drinks and none of us made a joke all day. It wasn't easy. He was really upset and we did our best. We could see he was broken up. But we were thinking, he's finally free. He can move on and meet someone nice. He didn't have to put up with her anymore. Seemed like it was a new beginning for him. We had to still pretend we were sorry she was gone. But we were also trying to be positive, sneak in the odd silver lining, like the fact he could stay out late if he wanted to. But he didn't ever want to. He still kept going at ten. And we didn't say anything about it. Just as we did before. Force of habit, we thought. But as the weeks went on, the old habit didn't go away. So one night, Alf says to him, Greg, you don't have to go early. Stay, live a little. This was a Friday. He didn't have to get up for work. So he twisted his arm, said we'd get a curry. Why not come along? He didn't really want to. We seemed to talk him into it but he was checking his phone as it got close to ten. He waits until we're on the quiz machine, then slips out and heads off. It was weird. 
You'd think he'd be trying to make the best of it. We were trying to keep an eye out for him. Wanted to make sure he didn't, I don't know, top himself or do something stupid. We used to call on him a lot and invite him around to our places. But sometimes he might still cancel on your last minute and with no real excuse. He'd have a headache or stomachache or something that obviously wasn't true. We were talking, me and Ed, and Ed said he'd called on Greg and found out he still had all the things there. He hadn't got rid of any of her stuff. We talked to her about it later, and we offered to help him sort the stuff out. He says he should, but he just hasn't got round to it. We push him a little, force him to name a date. It's not good to be stuck in the past. He needs to move on. We go to his the next Saturday. When we show up, he's uncomfortable and fidgety. And then when he's making us a cuppa, he just breaks down. Says he's not ready for it yet. He can't do it today. It's too much for him. So we take him out and give him a few drinks, play some snooker. We try to take his mind off it. And he's okay for a while. But we say to him, he can't wait forever. We're going to come by next Saturday. He needs to be ready for it. He just nods, doesn't say much, but agrees to it. By next Saturday, Ed has got a cold and leaves it to me. Cheers, mate. I go over and Greg's nervous and fidgety again. But this time, rather than try to put it off, he says he'd rather do it himself. She wouldn't like it if other people were touching her things. I know what he's doing, so I tell him he can't put it off. i got better things to do with my Saturdays. We're going to do this today. To show him I'm serious, I get out of my chair and head for the stairs. He grabs me and shouts, No, you can't! You can't go up there! He's frantic. He's desperate. He's trying to block my way and I'm just about to say something to him. But then I hear the floor creak above us. You've got someone up there, I say to him. And he looks away from me, embarrassed. That's great, Greg. You don't need to be shy about that. It's great you've found someone. No, you don't understand, he shouts. He's sweating, he's trembling. Then he whispers, She's not dead. The second he says it, he puts both hands over his mouth and backs off, like not even he can believe what he's just said. I think he's cracked. What are you talking about? You need to leave, he says. I'll be fine, but you need to go. Greg, I'm not going. Please, just leave. I don't know what I'm saying. I'll be fine. I just need you to go. I look upstairs. I did hear the floor creak, but that could just be the house. Hell, it must be. Greg, your wife's dead. You know that, right? We had the funeral, remember? I remember, he says. Tears fall down his face. She died, but... He looks up the stairs. Like he's looking up at her, looking for advice. She's not there, Greg. I decide I'm going up there. I'll show you. No, wait! He shouts. They only have a small terraced house. There's just two bedrooms upstairs. One just stores old boxes and junk. Then there's the bedroom. I go inside and it's empty. Greg, there's no one here. He stands in the doorway, tears in his eyes. I open the wardrobe and look under the bed. Nothing in here. Nothing down here. There's nothing here, is there? He doesn't say anything. I say it right to his face. There's no one here. 
I want you to say it. No, he whispers. No, that's right. And that's when I hear the toilet flush. Suddenly all my hairs are standing on end. Greg, who's that? He doesn't say anything. Greg, tell me, who is that? You should go. She won't want to find you in here. I hear the lock on the bathroom door snap back. I feel a kind of shot go up my spine. The bathroom door creaks open. There's the sound of footsteps on the carpet. Greg and me, we start backing into the corner of the room. We can hear her across the landing. We're practically holding each other, waiting for the horror to come through the door. It's half closed. It starts to open. Greg screams, I'm sorry, I told him not to come up here. The door opens all the way. But there's no one there. The sound stops. I feel my heart beating like the clappers. I'm trembling, but Greg is shaking so hard he looks like he's going to fall to bits. He grabs me. Why'd you have to come up here? He's shaking me. Why'd you do come up here? Why'd you come up here? I try to push him off. I shove him so hard he falls down against the bed. He's crying. I go to pick him up. I'm getting you out of here. I can't leave, he whines. I'm not having any of it and he doesn't put up much of a fight. I drive him back to mine. He spends the afternoon sitting in my living room, staring straight ahead like a man in shock. I don't say much to him. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I think about calling Ed or someone else. Maybe a doctor, maybe Greg's parents. Can't add it up. Greg might be losing it, but me? I heard that noise too. And you can't catch madness. There had to be some proper explanation. But I couldn't think of one. So I put the telly on, make him a drink and say, You can stay here as long as you want. You don't have to go back to that house. He says sharply, but she needs me. No, she doesn't. She's dead. She doesn't need you anymore. You've got to move on, son. He twitches, and in a tiny, quiet voice, he says, It's not that. He's struggling to say something. He looks around if she might be listening, hiding just out of sight. I want to move on. But she won't let me. He starts to cry again. She's angry. I let her down. No offence, Greg. But if it was me, I don't think I could have put up with everything you put up with from that woman. I pushed her. You should have seen his face. You should have seen my face. She was struggling up the stairs and I pushed her. I just knew that I could. I watched her fall. I didn't know if she'd get back up again. But I hoped she wouldn't. He breaks down, weeping, struggling to speak. I was supposed to be taking care of her. What do you say to someone who says all that? I hid in the kitchen for a few minutes. Jesus. Greg was a murderer. 
Greg of all people. He'd really done it. He could go to prison for this. But I couldn't give him up. Not Greg, I mean, if there was anyone who didn't deserve it, it was him. He might have done it, but he was pushed. Pushed into pushing her. I wasn't going to grass him up. Not for this. Greg, listen to me. Doesn't matter what's happened. Everything's going to be okay. You can stay with me. You don't have to go back to that house. I don't know what's going on or what you think is happening there. But it's time to let go. I can't leave her. She's dead, Greg. She's not there. How could she be? He didn't look very convinced. She's dead, isn't she? Say it with me, Greg. Melinda is dead. He couldn't. He burst into tears again. I put my hand on his shoulder. What was I supposed to do? I didn't know how to deal with this. That was the longest day. I let him cry it out and then made us some dinner and we watched more TV. He didn't say much. He barely moved from his spot on the sofa. Kept having to tell him to eat or drink something. I put the football on and that kept us going. Then late in the evening we're watching the highlights. And he gets up to go to the loo. He's gone a while. A really long while. I start to wonder how long it's been. I check my watch. It's 9.50. Almost 10 o'clock. It's his home time. I rush to the hall and see his coat and shoes are gone. I should have known. I should have guessed he'd make a run for it. I get in my car. How much of a head start does he have? I reckon he's been gone about 20 minutes, give or take. If he's walked in or run, he's probably not there yet. Unless he's taken a taxi. I drive up and the lights are on. He's beaten me. I knock on the door, really knock hard. Greg, you've got to let me in. There's no answer. Maybe I should call the police. If he's as crazy as I think he could hurt himself. And just when I'm thinking that, I hear screaming. Greg is screaming. I decide I'm going to force the door. I force it with my shoulder and it fucking hurts like hell. He's in the kitchen. He's burning his hand in a George Foreman grill. He's pressing the lid down with his right hand and burning the left one inside. There was smoke coming off his own hand. His own hand! I grab him and pull him away. We fly from one side of the kitchen to the other. Pans and plates fall down on us as we crash into the cupboards. What the fuck is wrong with you? He's screaming in agony. His hand is red and pink and black. The grill is on the floor lying open. Burnt skin still sizzling on it. He's hysterical, screaming, howling. I don't know what to do. He's scaring me now. And I'm scared shitless. I don't want to touch his hand. I don't want to do anything that might make it worse. I get out my phone to call an ambulance. I start to dial. I turn my back on him for like two seconds. Just when my phone starts to ring, I hear him walking on broken plates. He brains me with a frying pan. I drop my phone, I fall forwards. My phone slides into the hallway. I try to call after it, but I don't get far. He cries out. I brace myself. The second hit knocks me out.
Some time later, I wake up and I'm in the hall. I'm dizzy. My head is ringing. Just lifting my head is so painful. The room is spinning. And the smell, it smelled horrible. I feel like I'm going to be sick. I can barely make it onto my hands and knees. Smells like rotten eggs. It was gas. The place stunk of gas. I got onto my feet, but I couldn't walk straight. I had no balance. I was falling from one side of the hall to the other. But I had to get to the kitchen. The door was stuck. There was something jammed underneath. Old towels. I managed to shove it open. All the gas rushed out. It made me choke. Greg was lying flat. The cookers open and all the hobs were turned on. I turned them off and got the windows open. I don't know how long he'd been out, but I could tell by the look at Greg that I'd been out too long. All the colour was gone from his face. He'd been sick on the floor. He was already cold. I managed to call 999 before I passed out again. I don't remember what happened when they arrived. I had to be taken to hospital. It was all too much, you know. I got treated for concussion, but it was it was too late for Greg. Poor bloke. It's not easy to poison yourself for gas these days. Natural gas isn't poisonous. It took him ages to suffocate and die in there. Fucking hours. I tried, you know, I really tried to help him. He left a note. He had it scrunched up in his hand. The one he hadn't almost burnt off. All it said was, Sorry. I don't know whether he was saying sorry to me or to someone else. And that's the worst part of it. I don't know when he decided to kill himself, whether it was because he wanted to get away from her or because, in his twisted head, he thought he had to be with her, that he needed to kill himself so he could go wherever he thought she was because he thought he had to so they could be together. I hope not. I really hope not. I want to believe he's found peace. I really want to believe that. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash newghoststories. You can also support the podcast by liking or leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. Today's story features in the book 14 New Ghost Stories, which is available from Amazon, Apple Books, and other book retailers. This podcast is written, presented, and produced by me, David Paul Nixon. If you'd like to read more from me, visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at my website, newghoststories.com, and for all the latest updates, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, a man's dreams turn into nightmares when he follows a girl into the forest. New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified.
the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Horrified Mag.